there are more than 300 million guns in circulation in the United States. So there's more than one for every man, woman and child. But the number of people who own guns has actually decreased. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? October. My name is Alice Workman and I'm in Canberra. Joining me from Sydney is Lane Sainty. Lane, hello. Alice, hello. It is our quarter century episode. Lane, this is very exciting. The podcast is 25 eps. You are 25. Next week, the podcast <laughs> will, have, will have done more episodes than you've been than years you've been alive. Yeah, it, it will have. What what a time to be alive for both me and the Is It On podcast. Now, we thought last week we had reached peak ridiculous Ozpol with uh, all the Macklemore and the same loves. But, um, <laughs> well, it seems the American rapper has left a different mark on the Australian politics scene than I think many people had anticipated. Um, mm. Bill Shorten, Labor leader Bill Shorten, went on uh, Nova FM Breakfast in Sydney. Fitzy and Whipper is the show. He went on... Uh, this morning, and he did a he did a little rap, Lane, to Fifty Cent's Interclub, and I want to just I just want to play it to you. All right, let's do this, Bill. Okay. You're going to be going right. first. I haven't, I haven't heard this. Fifty Cent Interclub, you ready to go, Bill? Yeah, as ready as I'll ever be. Let's do it, Lane. Yo, got it, Bill. I'm Bill Shorten, I'm head of my pack. The Sydney Swans go Fitzy the sack. Oh! Whipper's not bad, but just a waste of my time. You boys will be crying by the end of my rhyme. Oh! Each day I listen to you fellas whinge and whine. I'd rather go to question time with Christopher Pine. Oh! Our economy's in debt, but Malcolm's just chilling. Hey Malcolm, can you lend us a couple of million? Oh! Will I rap again? It's anyone's guess, but there's more chance of Tony Abbott voting yes. Oh! I, I've nailed the rap, I'm the cat, you're the mouse. The tables have turned, now it's Shorten's house. And he dabs, he dabs at the end of it there. Now let's just let's just let's just analyze some of Bill's uh, rhyming structure here. Um, yeah, let's uh, do that. Each day I listen to you fellas whinge and whine. I'd rather go to Question Time with Christopher Pine. Not too bad. Not too bad. Our economy's in debt, but Malcolm's just chilling. Hey, Malcolm, can you lend us a couple of million? So chillin' a million. How yeah, about that for a rap rhyme? It's, it's all right. It's pretty good. It's not a, it's mm-hmm. not a perfect rhyme, but, um, it's not, it's, you know, I'm being pedantic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's no childish Gambino. Um, I, yeah. okay, but let me, let me get to the next bit. Yeah, yeah, Will yeah. I rap again? It's anyone's guess. But there's more chance of Tony Abbott voting yes. Well, can I just say I, I am that clearly means I'm relieved by the odds given there by Bill Shorten about the chances of him yeah, rapping again. He'll never again. rap again. No. This is his, this is his one chance at yes. rap. And then it, it ends with I've nailed the rap. I'm the cat, you're the mouse. The tables have turnbulled. Now it's Shorten's house. <laughs> oh, it reminds me of one of my favorite lines from the office, which is um how the turntables. <laughs> I you know what? I would say that rap was not bad. Yeah, yeah. Look, if you if if you'd said to me Bill Shorten is doing a rap, 
I would immediately think it would be terrible. Yeah. Um, but I think that was fine. Anyway, Bill Shorten lost that rap battle to Fitzy, Whipper and Ray Hadley. Don't ask. It's a long story and I can't be able to tell you. You can look it up online. Um, so let's get to this week's Fast Five because number one, Lane, I am completely shook. Nick Xenophon has resigned. What? I'm also completely shook by this news, Alice. What? I saw the kind of breaking tweet about it and I was just like, what? What? Yeah, I think it I think it shocked a lot of people. That's right. Nick Xenophon, leader of the aptly titled Nick Xenophon team. He's a key independent senator. We talk about him all the time. Nick Xenophon has announced his resigning from federal parliament to run for a seat in South Australian state parliament. So he's moving from federal to state, which is not often a move you see voluntarily in Australian politics, I would say. Uh, yeah, he announced this on Friday morning. Everyone was shocked. So the Nick Xenophon team have uh, four people in federal parliament. Uh, Nick himself, then Senator Sky Kokoschke-Moore and Senator Sterling Griff and uh, Rebecca Sharkey, who has the lower house seat of Mayo. And I mean, he's a huge power player in the Senate. He's been there since 2007 and now he holds the balance of power. He's the make or break over whether the Turnbull government can pass its legislation. And we saw that only a few weeks ago with uh, media law reforms. But no, he's decided that he wants to quit. Uh, he's formed a new party called Nick Xenophon's SA Best, South Australian Best. And he's going to run for the state seat of Hartley in March in 2018, which is in Adelaide's east. But I guess the biggest question is, why is he moving from federal to state? Well, he says uh, SA Best plans to contest seats in both houses of state parliament, um, but he noted, especially in the lower house where governments are formed. Now, Labor has been in power for a long time in South Australia. Could Xenophon get a few people elected and potentially put himself in a position to form a coalition, maybe with the Liberals, maybe with Labor? I mean, if he forms a coalition, could he vie for a seat in cabinet, get a minister's job? He can't do that in federal parliament, especially from the Senate where he is now. Uh, He says he's aiming just for the balance of power, but I say, wait and see. Only time will tell if he gets the huge swings like he got at the last federal election. He could really position himself to be, you know, a key player in South Australian state politics. Um, Now, when is this all going to happen? Well, Nick Xenophon is in court with the other pollies next week over the dual citizenship case. Uh, So that's in the High Court on Tuesday. His lawyer says that he's confident that Nick will actually come out on top and that he won't be found to be ineligible. But but whatever the outcome, Xenophon said when the decision is handed down, he will leave the Senate. Uh, But he hasn't said uh, who will replace him. He said there is no golden ticket, uh, So we and we also don't know yet how they will do the replacement depending on what the High Court rules. So huge Australian politics news. Uh, Lane, what is number two? That is huge Australian politics news indeed. Uh, number two this week, we are going overseas to the big story around the world, which was obviously the absolutely tragic shooting in Las Vegas, at least 58 dead and about 500 injured after a gunman opened fire on a crowd enjoying a country music festival from his hotel room on Sunday night. The shooter had 23 guns in the room with him, many of them semi-automatic rifles that had been modified to fire like fully automatic weapons. So... You know, whenever a big mass shooting of this kind happens in America, and, and, you know, this one was the biggest one they've had in in modern history, it prompts a lot of discussion over here, comparisons to Australia's gun laws. So obviously this week, a lot of our political leaders were asked about it. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull told Hit 101.9 FM that Mm. guns in America just seem like an intractable problem. He said a lot of Australians find it extraordinary and incredible and, and not obviously in the good sense of those words, that ordinary Americans can purchase military weapons designed for soldiers, which is not the case here. 
The shooting also coincided with the end of Australia's gun amnesty, which was the first one that we have had since the Port Arthur massacre in 1996, where 35 people were killed. So 51,000 unregistered firearms were handed into the government between July 1st and September 30th. The shooting also coincided with the end of Australia's gun amnesty, which was the first one that we've had since the Port Arthur massacre in 1996. So 51,000 unregistered firearms were handed into the government between the 1st of July this year and September 30th, just gone. That's out of 260,000 unregistered firearms thought to be floating around in Australia. And that's that estimate is from the National Crime Intelligence Committee. So we had the Vegas shooting, a lot of political response, and then our gun amnesty. The news just came in on that of Friday. But that's enough on guns for now because we're going to be talking about it later with Dr. David Smith. So, Alice, what's number three? Number three is about the tougher national security laws that were passed at this week's COAG. That's the Council of Australian Governments, which was held in Canberra on Thursday, where all states and territories gave unanimous support for a bunch of things, including increasing the time you can hold a terror suspect without charge for up to 14 days, uh, which is currently what it is in New South Wales. Other states have a max of seven, so they've increased it to 14 days. We don't know all the details of it yet, but Justice Minister Michael Keenan has said that kids as young as 10 could be held for 14 days without charge. Um, They also agreed to handing over photos of every licensed driver to authorities to expand the automated facial recognition system, and they hope that it's going to be in place by the Commonwealth Games next year. Now, this is not like American TV. This is not going to be live scanning of faces and picking people out of crowds, Um, but CCTV footage can be fed into the facial recognition system to find people if there is a threat or if there has been an attack or if they have CCTV footage later. So it's it's not a live kind of moving thing. Uh, COAG also agreed that people with links to terror won't be granted uh, bail or parole um, and there will be an emergency alert system that will... text people's phones during terror attacks. They also agreed to two new Commonwealth offences. One, possession of instructional terrorist material and two, terrorism hoaxes, but we don't know what the punishment for either of these crimes will be. Now, this whole thing has sparked a huge debate on civil liberty and privacy. COAG says any concerns about civil liberties are a luxury in the terrorist climate that we live in today. The PM agreed and he said that security and freedom go hand in hand and we're only free if we have this kind of level of security. But It's also raised questions about things like, well, currently in Australia, you can catch a plane without showing ID or even talking to anyone because you can just check in on your phone and then, you know, go through security and walk straight to the gate. Should that be updated? Um, But also, Lane, I think like the thing that's really tipping people off is that the facial recognition Mm. program is called the Capability which just sounds super creepy, right? It just sounds Orwellian or like something out of a James Bond movie. And I think that is just freaking people out. It sounds totally creepy. The capability. Mm. Like this kind of, you know, We have the capability. We have system. the technology. Yeah. No, that, that totally freaks me out. Okay. What um, is number four? Number four, Alice, is that the final report on MH370 came out this week from the Australian Transport Safety Bureau. And, of course, MH370 was the Malaysia Airlines flight that mysteriously disappeared on March 8th, 2014, during a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. It had 227 passengers and 12 crew on board, including six Australians. So the report said that the search for MH370 had been the largest of its kind in the history of aviation. But the final answer to the question, what happened, is still, look, 
we don't know. The joint search by Australia, China and Malaysia for the plane was suspended in January and the report says that our understanding of where the wreckage might be is better now than it has ever been, but we won't know exactly what happened until the wreckage is found. And Alice, what struck me about this report is that it's very sad and I know that seems like a, a very obvious thing to say given it's you know a great tra- tragedy and many lives were lost, but I think when this happened and it was just huge news around the world when this plane went missing, I don't think anyone thought that this far down the track, it's been over three years since it happened, that we would still all be wondering. So I just wanted to read a bit from the executive summary. Mm -hmm. It said, It is almost inconceivable and certainly societally unacceptable in the modern aviation era with 10 million passengers boarding commercial aircraft every day for a large commercial aircraft to be missing and for the world not to know with certainty what became of the aircraft and those on board. And then... We share your profound and prolonged grief and deeply regret that we have not been able to locate the aircraft, nor those 239 souls on board that remain missing. So still no answers on MH370. And given that the search has been suspended and and the information in this report, it seems a real possibility that we will just never know what happened. Okay, so Alice, what's number five? Well, number five is an update on the New Zealand election. And that update, Lane, is that there is, in fact, no update. Um, oh, no. Now, yeah, so New Zealand still <laughs> remains with... No, I mean, they've got a case to take a government, but they still still don't know two weeks after going to the polls who will be their next prime minister. Uh, Winston Peters, who we've talked of before, who holds the balance of power and is the leader of the New Zealand First Party, he kicked off negotiations with National and Labor this week. He spoke to National First, but, but there's nothing to read into that. He just said that he'd speak to the party that won more seats first. So he spoke to National First and, and then Labor uh, in the afternoon. Now, when will he make his decision? Well... Well, not before uh, this Saturday, definitely, which is when the final vote tally is released with special votes and overseas votes. Um, But he's hinted he could hold out until Thursday, the 12th of October, or even longer. And Lane, this isn't the first time New Zealand First has held the balance of power. And Winston Peters isn't rushing his coalition decision. Some people, (laughs) he made some comments this week about how he wanted to go and give his boat a good scrub. Now, Lane... In 1996, when he was part of the government uh, negotiations, he literally went fishing instead of negotiating who would form the government. So <laughs> that that's a particularly funny activity because you know obviously the phrase like oh, I've gone fishing I'm yeah. on holiday or whatever. No, but no, he he literally went and caught some fish he <laughs> instead literally of went fishing. trying to solidify the government <laughs> of a nation. Yeah, exactly. So he I said- love that that extent of like just not giving a damn. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny from a man who says that he's you know represents the kind of mass movement of New Zealanders who are apathetic about politics. So maybe and just at- want to go. Fishing. Yeah, they just want to go, like, what do you do on Saturday? I don't want to negotiate with Bill English. I'd rather go catch some fish. Fish and chips oh, is the national food of New Zealand for a reason, Lane. The controversial same-sex marriage postal vote. This plebiscite on same-sex marriage. Postal vote. Postal plebiscite. The postal plebiscite or survey or whatever it is on same-sex marriage. That's right, we got sick of having the same-sex marriage postal survey in the Fast Five uh, or Sluggish Six every single week, so we've made a special segment for it, um, also known as Lane's Great Unwinding. Lane, what has happened in the last week? So the big thing this week, Alice, was the first release from the ABS of an estimate of how many forms have been sent back, and the magic number is 9.2 million, and that amounts to 57.5% of eligible voters. So after these figures were released, 
just we had both campaigns coming out and saying that they thought that turnout was good and and also saying that we're going to keep fighting for every single last survey form. There's going to be absolutely no slowing down of the campaigns from what they said. Um, The Yes campaign was also quick to point out that they thought that estimate was on the low side. They said there's a postal delay of a few days and it's likely to be a bit more than that. So I suppose we'll see next week when we get our next update from the ABS on Tuesday. Uh, Anyway, it's safe to say that both the government and the ABS uh, would be relieved with that turnout. It's, you know, a significant number of people. It certainly rates well alongside countries with non-compulsory voting. Um, One thing that did happen this week in terms of the turnout was that Malcolm Turnbull did a couple of interviews in which he said that he thought the turnout was actually an endorsement of the postal survey policy. And a lot of people Hmm. took umbrage at that. They said, you know, on social media and on Twitter, look, mate, this, you know, this turnout is not an approval of your policy. It's a sign that, you know, we were kind of harangued into having this vote. And of course, I'm talking about, you know, yes, supporters and and LGBTI people who did oppose the plebiscite in the first instance here. I I took it as a bit of a jab at the LGBTI community. I'm I'm not sure if he meant it that way or not, but that is certainly how it came across to many people. Um, So other, other things that happened this week, one story I wrote was about the Canadian dad featured in a lot of the No campaign ads, which have been all over Facebook. They've been shared thousands and thousands of times, warning against radical gay sex education, Alice, <laughs> one of the biggest fears in this campaign. So this dad, he's called Steve Torlaucus, and in these videos, he's kind of positioned as, you know, a crusader against radical gay sex ed in Canada. Um, but the videos put out by the No campaign, you know, they, they're a bit vague. They lack a bit of detail. So I wanted to find out more. So I went looking for the court records of the case that Steve Talorcas is talking about in these videos put out by the No campaign, and they actually revealed quite a lot. So he had a huge list of things that he wanted his kids' public school to give him advance notice of so he could pull his kids out of class. He did object to the mention of sex education, but he also objected to the mention of things like horoscopes, wizardry, environmental worship, moral relativism. He, he wasn't just opposed to learning about gay sex, but he also didn't want his kids hearing any discussion or even, even any mention of gay or trans people that positioned these people or, or their relationships as healthy and natural. So in the end, the case was really about not, you know, whether or not parents have the right to object to sex ed. The, the court actually said, you know, you do have the right to pull your kids out of sex ed class. But the, the case was about whether it was really reasonable for the school to not agree to give Torlaucus advance notice of his long list so he could remove his kids. And the judge agreed that the school had acted reasonably. So the lesson there, Alice, I think, is to always keep an eye on the case studies being thrown out in this marriage debate and that there is always more to it than you think. Um, (laughs) Do you know where I see a lot of this ad? Yeah. During the ad breaks of my favourite political television program, Australian Survivor. Oh, really? Yes. Yes, that well, like at least, and I mean, Canberra TV is uh, it's it's not ten, it's Win in Canberra, so Win is mm-hmm. a bit um, weird. Uh, sometimes I see that ad twice in one ad break. <laughs> I know it quite well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but Lane, I want to ask you about my favorite uh, postal survey story this week. Um, uh-huh. You went for a walk around your neighborhood, uh, <laughs> knocking on people's doors this week. Please, please tell me why. Okay, Alice, so 
you know, on the train home on Wednesday night, I got an email from the Coalition for Marriage, you know, not not me personally, but sent out to their entire supporter base of, of which I am signed up to, um, saying that they had launched a new app. And because I have such a raging social life, as soon as I got home, I decided to download the app and have a look through it. And it has this function, Alice, that literally directs you to your neighbours' houses who haven't yet heard from the No campaign. Now, I was in a pretty weird mood on Wednesday night, so I just kind of decided on a whim to go and visit my neighbours and ask them what they actually thought about the app um, and, you know, show it to them. And, and Alice, I had some really great conversations. Uh, one older woman told me that she had been married to her husband for 50 years and that they loved everyone, including gay and lesbian people, and often had them over for dinner and drinks. Another man told me that he had been talking to his neighbours about the survey and that they all were planning to vote yes or had voted yes. And another man told me that he was not interested in talking to me and that he did not care either way that I'd been directed to his house on an app. So, you know, funny times, Alice. Strange times. Well, it's weird um, given the debate about civil liberties, right? So first we had yeah. the, the yes camp sending people unsolicited text messages to their mobile phones. Corey Bernardi yep. robocalling um, people's home phones in uh, Victoria and South Australia. Now we have this yep. app that essentially is publishing the um, it's publishing the electoral roll really uh, online and um, telling people who they haven't like who the no camp have and haven't contacted and encouraging people to door knock people's house. It's I mean I the, I don't know if I, the civil libertarians must be losing their freaking minds, Lane. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wanted to go and actually ask people about it. Because, you know, there were a lot of people online saying um, this is outrageous. And also, you know, there were lots of people online saying the yes text was outrageous and the Bernardi calls were outrageous. And I think a lot of this is couched in the fact that Australians just aren't used to a get out the vote campaign. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah. The neighbours, they, they, they all pretty much uniformly said that they didn't care. That, that I'd been directed to the house using an app. So, you know, I, I obviously only, um, I visited four, five houses. So make of that what you will. Um, but Alice, what's been happening among the kind of politicians with the postal survey? So I see there's been some stories this week about Labor MPs who oppose same-sex marriage and, and what they've been doing. They've been pretty quiet in this debate so far. It's quite interesting that there is a group of Labor politicians who don't support same-sex marriage who have basically been told to fake their support or to keep quiet. Um, one of them is about Helen Polly, who is a Labor senator from Tasmania. Um, uh, fans of Helen Polly might remember that uh, she often sports a sombrero in the chamber, uh, uh, which is uh, she has this whole sombrero thing because of the the three amigos was the nickname for the three liberals in Tasmania who got booted at the last election, but she can't let it go. Anyway, she reckons that she's come under pressure from her colleagues to say so that she just supports it when she doesn't. And Chris Hayes, who's an MP for Cabramatta in Western Sydney, uh, says that he wants strong religious protections, but um, there's a there's a group of, of Labor polis that just haven't posted anything on their social media or, or spoken publicly about same-sex marriage because they don't support it. And you don't often hear from them um, because they're mainly from Labor right. Most of them are Catholic uh, and some of them are from the shopping union, which is the right-wing union. But I reckon that when Parliament comes back in that we might uh, we might see the coalition uh, going these people a little and, and, and pointing out that not everyone in Labor supports supports the yes camp. Yeah, absolutely. It's um and you know the Labor Party is in a bit of an awkward situation here because when they decided 
that their conscience vote on the issue would end in 2019. I mean, I don't really think that they thought at that point that we would still be talking about this by 2019 and that that would actually, you know, come into effect and that some members of the caucus who very strongly oppose same-sex marriage for a variety of reasons would um, would actually be bound to, to vote against it. So whether or not you, you know, support or, or don't support the fact that it's going to become binding from 2019 onwards, I think it definitely does put Labor in a bit of an awkward situation. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, you know, particularly if there is a no vote in the postal survey and it ends up being in the hands of the of the next government. Mm, okay, one well, finally, uh, just uh, interesting to note that we're still five weeks away from result, but eight out of the 11 newspapers have written editorials calling for the yes vote, and that includes the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun, which are the two biggest Murdoch papers in Sydney and Melbourne. But yes, Lane, there is still five weeks to go. <laughs> Five weeks to go. (laughs) Okay, well, enough postal survey. Let's uh, head to the biggest story this week, uh, which, of course, is the latest mass shooting in America in Las Vegas. So Lane sat down with Dr. David Smith, who is a senior lecturer in American politics and foreign policy at the United States Study Centre in Sydney to try and understand a bit more about why shooting after shooting happens. Uh, Nothing seems to change. David Smith, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. The shooting in Las Vegas this week is being called the worst in modern history. Can you put that that phrase in a bit of context for us? So certainly this is the worst example of the kind of mass shootings that we've unfortunately become very used to over the last 20 years, where you have somebody usually armed with semi-automatic weapons opening fire on a crowd of people that they don't know and killing people in tragically large numbers. This is probably not the biggest mass shooting or mass killing in American history. There were race riots in the early 20th century, uh, such as the Tulsa riot in 1921, that killed far greater numbers of people. But this, in terms of what we are used to in America today, even by those standards is the worst one that we have seen. It's difficult to comprehend the lives of 59 people being taken in this way in such a short period of time by one person at an entertainment venue. And I think this is such a shocking and horrific occurrence and one which, unlike other mass shootings, there's a lot of footage and sound Uh, available of it, which we've all been subjected to over the last few days. I think it is perhaps going to take a while to actually sink in for a lot of Americans how horrific this act was. Every time there is a mass shooting in the US, there is a comparison to Australia and and what happened after the 1996 Port Arthur massacre in terms of the tightening of, of our gun laws. Could you talk us through what steps Australia took to change our gun laws and whether you think anything in, in that kind of vein could be possible in the US? Yeah, so Australia very quickly reformed its gun laws in the wake of the Port Arthur massacre. It's important to remember that the federal government at the time had only been in power for an incredibly short period of time. So this was really one of John Howard's first acts as Prime Minister. It was a very decisive act. It was also a very popular act, albeit one that required political courage because the National Party, which was in coalition 
with the, the Liberal Party, a lot of their constituents weren't happy about these kinds of bans. But essentially what happened was that semi-automatic weapons were outlawed and the practical way that this was dealt with was by buying them back off the people who own them, buying all kinds of categories of guns back. And so this was a very big and by our standards pretty expensive scheme. We bought back 650,000 guns and there are some analyses that suggest that the rate of gun ownership in Australia has never recovered, that it really just substantially decreased both the availability and the supply of guns in Australia, although there's some evidence that guns are actually coming back um, by illegal channels and that the gun laws need to be tightened up. Now, this always leads to, the Australian experience always leads to calls for something similar in the US. I think that it would be politically and perhaps practically impossible to manage anything on the same scale in the US. I mean, we bought 650,000 weapons. There are something like 70 million semi-automatic weapons in circulation in the United States. And whereas for Australians, giving up guns for most people didn't represent what they would consider an infringement on their basic rights... In the United States, it is deeply ingrained that the act of giving up your guns to the government is actually an act of giving up political independence as well as potentially the right to defend yourself. So it would be a politically impossible bargain to actually do this in the US, even if you could afford it, even if a government which is $20 trillion in debt could actually afford uh, to buy back 70 million weapons A measure like that is basically impossible. Unfortunately, the genie is so far out of the bottle in the US that Americans have to live with the reality that for the time being, there are a lot of these military-style weapons in, in circulation and they are going to continue to be in circulation. What are the options for getting around the Second Amendment in, in term, the hypothetically speaking, if there was a kind of political will mm-hmm. for change? Uh, would it be a matter of a referendum? Could it potentially be reinterpreted, as some people have suggested, to say that you know the Second Amendment, as it currently stands, doesn't actually say that people should have unfettered access to, to semi-automatic weapons? Yeah, certainly the Second Amendment is always up for grabs. It was only in 2008 that a Supreme Court decision actually interpreted as an individual right to gun ownership. However, with the election of Donald Trump and the appointment of Neil Gorsuch, a conservative, to the Supreme Court, it is likely that that will remain the interpretation uh, for quite a long time with a conservative majority. But just because the Second Amendment exists, that doesn't mean there can't be any restrictions on guns, even if this is the thing that's constantly cited. So there actually was a ban on semi-automatic weapons in the United States between 1994 and 2000. That ban expired. It wasn't overthrown for legal reasons. It expired for political reasons, uh, one of which was George W. Bush ran his election campaign that year on letting it expire and not bringing it back. The right to bear arms under the Constitution doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has access to 
all guns. There's been a ban on machine guns in the US since 1982, which it's opposed by the National Rifle Association, but otherwise it is relatively uncontroversial. There are all kinds of measures that could be taken, such as expanded background checks for guns, making those background checks that apply to gun shops also apply to gun shows, where something like a third of uh, weapons are sold in the United States. You could make enlarged magazines illegal. These are the things that allow people to fire off dozens or hundreds of rounds before they have to reload. You could, you, you can make silencers illegal, which is currently the case in the United States, but which Congress is debating around whether they should be legal. So there are all kinds of ways, even within the Second Amendment, to actually reduce the lethality of gun violence in the United States. That has limits. It's been found to be quite difficult to ban handguns in the United States, uh, for example, and arguably they are the biggest problem of all. That's where the vast majority of gun of gun homicides happen. But even within the Second Amendment, gun control is possible. You mentioned there that the you know handguns are a really huge problem here. When we are talking about gun crime, gun deaths mm-hmm. in the US, which guns are, are the are the main problem? Are we talking registered guns, illegal guns? Um, you mentioned handguns are a big problem. What role do semi-automatic weapons play? Well, what's the kind of breakdown there? Sure. So just some numbers. There are more than 300 million guns in circulation in the United States. So there's more than yeah. one for every man, woman and child. But the number of people who own guns has actually decreased over time from about 50% of households to less than a third of households. So we're talking more and more guns in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Most of these guns are legal. Of the 33,000 gun deaths that took place last year, around two-thirds of these were suicides. So when we're talking about deaths by gunshot wounds, that's always a huge part of the equation. And it's actually been noted that when Australia implemented its gun buyback scheme, which reduced the number of guns in Australia, the homicide rate dropped, but the suicide rate actually plummeted. Right, so this is a real issue. Having guns which kill so easily at hand, it's perhaps a bigger deal when it comes to suicide than when it comes to homicide. A lot of gun deaths in the United States that are homicides happen as a result of domestic violence. This is another tragic consequence of having a lot of guns around, that people who own them completely legally, who have them in a domestic context, end up using them on their partners. Then another part of the gun death equation is, you know, in the context of criminal gangs. who um, And this is one of the things that's often stereotyped as being the big problem in the United States. For example, the Republican Party, the NRA, even President Trump constantly talk about Chicago. They say, well... You know, when you get 40 murders in a weekend in Chicago, and Chicago actually has fairly tight gun control compared to other places, clearly the problem is fixing this criminality rather than banning guns. And this is always very, very racially coded. When people think about violence in Chicago, they're thinking about African-Americans killing each other. But if you look at a correlation between the density of gun ownership in the United States and the rate of firearm death in the United States. 
you see that somewhere like Chicago actually has only about half of the rate of firearm death that somewhere like Wyoming has, which Wyoming also has about twice the rate of, of firearm ownership. The highest rates of gun death take place in places like Wyoming and Alaska and Mississippi, places that are a bit off the radar uh, sometimes, which have lower populations, but which have very high rates of gun ownership. It is just a fairly inevitable fact that the more guns you have around, the more likely they are to be used in any context. And a lot of those contexts are going to be lethal. If there are fewer people owning the guns in the US at the moment, does that kind of translate to a wider will among the people for gun reform? Is it that there are strong political forces standing in the way? Or as you mentioned earlier, you know, the the broad notion in the US that, that handing guns back to the government is actually ceding your kind of independence? Yeah, unfortunately, at least from my point of view, having even broad support for gun control measures doesn't always translate into political action. Now, the reason for this is that often in a democracy, a well-organised and highly motivated minority can defeat a more disparate and less motivated majority. And this is the case. Even if, for example, more than 80% of Americans would like to see expanded background checks. This isn't something they ever really think about, except in the context of a mass shooting, and it's certainly not something that they're politically active about. You compare that to, say, 5 million uh, gun owners, hobbyists, enthusiasts, and gun dealers who are represented by the NRA. They mobilise, because as far as they see it, they're defending their rights, uh, their rights to own guns in some cases, their right to make a profit off guns in other cases. So the National Rifle Association is an incredibly influential lobby group, and this is often interpreted in terms of money. So if it donates tens of millions of dollars to presidential and congressional campaigns, people think that it's very powerful, but it's actually the money isn't the reason why it's powerful. The reason why it's powerful is because of the way that it communicates with all these highly motivated gun owners and gun dealers and other opponents of gun control in the United States. The NRA is running a constant communications campaign telling people where to mobilise, telling people which members of Congress to go and harass, um, you know, warning people of measures coming through legislatures that might threaten their guns and, quite frankly, ramping up the paranoia, okay? Constantly during the Obama presidency, the NRA sent emails to its members saying that the Obama administration was about to take their guns away and that they had to both mobilise politically and go out and buy more guns. So the NRA keeps scores on every state and federal legislator in the country on how they perform on gun rights. And if you don't have that perfect A plus from the NRA and you're a Republican, you are potentially in trouble the next time a primary election rolls around. You might be in a safe district uh, where you can easily beat your Democrat opponent, as something like 80% of congressmen are in the Republican Party. But every two years, you have to get re-elected by your own party. And so people are terrified that there could be some challenger who is backed by the NRA 
which is very big in the Republican base that could come and unseat them. So we're now in a position where the NRA, even if it only represents 5 million people, even if it represents a minority in public opinion, has this absolute lock on the Republican Party. The only thing that is kind of hopeful in that respect is that it used to have more of a lock on the Democratic Party as well, especially Democrats uh, in rural states which have high levels of, of gun ownership. But we're now seeing that just as opposing gun control is a real litmus test on the Republican side, being in favour of it is a real litmus test on the Democratic side. Is there any kind of equivalent to the NRA in Australia? Not, not obviously in terms of gun rights movement, but just in terms of its enormous influence and political pressure that it exerts? Uh, no, there, there is not. I mean, the big lobby groups in Australia are primarily economic lobby groups. Yep. There is no movement that I can even think of in Australia that, that has that kind of power that the NRA has. We also have to remember, in the United States, Congress doesn't operate on the principle of party discipline. Every member of Congress is free every time to vote however they want on any piece of legislation. Right. This means that lobbying efforts directed at individuals in Congress on these kinds of social issues mm -hmm. are far more powerful and far more important in the United States. That's not to say that lobbying doesn't happen here. A huge amount of lobbying happens here. But it's mainly on economic issues uh, because of party discipline voting. It's very rare that you have an issue where individual members of parliament could be individually lobbied in that way. So okay. there's really no equivalent to it here. In fact, we're more likely to hear from the NRA in Australia than we actually are to hear from one of our own gun lobby groups. Over the past few years, a few people have put forward a particular sentiment on, on Twitter or in interviews, the, the idea that, you know, if nothing happened after the shooting in Newtown at Sandy Hook Elementary School, mm. if nothing happened after that, nothing ever will. Do you think that's true? It's very hard to say. And certainly that has been true for five years. I think there is reason to be very pessimistic about the prospects of gun control in the United States. Already, in the wake of Las Vegas, the usual suspects are not conceding anything to the possibility of gun control. We're yet to really see what Donald Trump is going to do on the issue. Interestingly, if Donald Trump wanted to pursue gun control measures, he would have a much better shot at it than Obama ever did because he would be able to bring some of the Republican base with him and some of Republican Congress with him. And they would actually be able to do something in cooperation with Democrats, which Obama could never get Republican cooperation. So far, what we're seeing from Trump is he's talking about, well, the answers will not be easy, which is classic kind of rhetoric from the pro-gun camp about, well, you can't just stop this stuff with legislation. But we're yet to see what Trump will do. But in terms of the rest of the Republican Party, even though people are basically remaining silent at this point because this is the last thing they want to talk about, that in itself suggests that things are going to play out the same way this time. Okay. And Trump is often referenced as, I suppose, a, a bit more of a loose cannon than a conventional mm -hmm. Republican yes. uh, president. I'm interested in, in how you think that might play out, specifically in terms of gun reform, and then more broadly, whether you think that's an accurate portrayal of, of Trump's presidency so far. 
Trump, in terms of how he's actually acted, has proven to be a pretty orthodox Republican 95% of the time. Okay. Some of the things that he says are quite unorthodox, especially on foreign policy. He does seem to be a bit more amenable to things like deficit spending than Republicans, but on most issues, he is pretty orthodox. And despite his sort of wild, maverick image that he had... Actually, one of the reasons he was able to get the Republican primary was because he moved very decisively to the right of the Republican Party when it came to social issues. Uh, That includes abortion and it includes gun control. The NRA spent a record amount of money on the Trump campaign. Uh, Trump, who was known to have had liberal positions on both gun control and abortion, really made a point of hammering in the primaries that he had now had a complete um, conservative revolution on those things. Trump is also very, very concerned constantly about what his base thinks of him. And that could definitely make him more conservative than he might otherwise be on gun control. As I've said, if he, for some reason, decided that he actually wanted to do it, and he has made a couple of these unorthodox decisions, such as negotiating with the Democrats over the budget, for example, and... Um, completely flipping his position on uh, essentially amnesties for children of illegal immigrants. If he did want to do that, as I say, he'd be able to bring some of the base with him. But he hasn't shown any indication that he wants to do that so far. But Trump is harder to predict than other presidents have been. It could be that he looks at all of the media coverage of what's going on and decides this is a place where he can really make a mark for good. But we're not seeing any indication of that so far. And just finally, David, the name of the podcast, Is It On? Um, It's a reference to leadership spills, usually here in Australia. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's always a lot of speculation about whether Trump is going to last as president with, you know, the various scandals surrounding his presidency. What do you think? Will he last a full term and, and will he get a second? Look, I think that he will last a full term. Impeachment is incredibly unusual and unlikely. Yeah. Uh, Historically, it's worth noting the full impeachment process has never actually happened. It almost happened to Richard Nixon, but he resigned before they could throw him out. Right. Um, It's very unusual that it even begins. It requires not only the majority of the House of Representatives, but two-thirds of the Senate to actually throw a president out. And... I mean, it's never going to happen with Republican majorities in both the House and the Senate. No matter how annoyed Republicans get with him, it's such a dramatic step. Uh, They're never going to take it. And if Republicans somehow take control of both the House and the Senate in 2018, which is unlikely, uh, even then they wouldn't be able to clear that two-thirds bar in the Senate. And and if Trump has messed up that much that they could, uh, they'd probably want to keep him around for uh, for the 2020 election. The only way that Trump leaves early is by choice or by medical emergency, essentially. Okay. And I don't see it happening by, by choice. Yep. Uh, medical emergency is possible because he is one of the oldest presidents that the United States has ever had. But even that seems unlikely. He's not showing any signs of, uh, yep. of flagging. And There's, also his doctor said that he's the healthiest person to ever healthiest person <laughs> take the presidency. <laughs> to ever take the presidency, according to uh, Doc Nick, Dr. Nick Ribeiro. Yep. Um, in terms of will he get a second term, uh, it's very hard to tell at this point. Even though he's got 
record low popularity ratings much of the time. He had record low popularity ratings when he was running for president. He still managed to cobble together a coalition that could win. So I wouldn't discount his ability to do that again. He's already campaigning and he's spending time in the kinds of places that he needs to get that coalition together again. Uh, So even though it seems a lot of people are assuming he wouldn't win a second term because of his unpopularity and his incompetence, that's just not necessarily the case. David Smith, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. So that was Dr. David Smith talking to us about the Las Vegas shooting and gun policy in the US. And the day after we did that interview, the National Rifle Association, the NRA, broke its silence four days after the shooting and it has actually called for, you know, the the Congress in America to look at some regulations on bump fire stocks, which the shooter in Las Vegas used to turn the, the rifle he was using, a semi-automatic rifle, into a rapid fire automatic weapon. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Mm, there's been a lot of gun talk this week and a lot of talk about how Australia has some of the strictest gun laws in the world. But I was really surprised to find out this week that in Western Australia, there's no minimum age for a child to fire a gun at a shooting range. And in New South Wales, 12-year-olds can hold minors' gun permits um, if they're shooting with an adult. And Michael Diamond, who is the Olympic shooter who was in the news this week because he was cleared of some firearm charges, said uh, that he started shooting at the age of six. Wow. Um, I grew up in the city Mm. and so I've had no experience with guns. But you grew up in Binya, which is a couple of hours out of of Sydney. Were there many guns around um, when you were growing up? Um, I I just need to say Binya is six hours out of Sydney. (laughs) So it's a bit more than a couple. Isn't that Um, a few? Yeah, I don't know. Um, Six, a few? Six, oh yes, okay. So yes, well, I I didn't grow up around guns, I would say. Um, My my dad has a gun. I I grew up on a farm, um, or at least I, I was on a farm from the age of seven. So yeah, I think like a lot of farm. Um, my dad has one gun. He, you know, I saw him get it out very occasionally to, to put down a, a sheep that had been injured or an animal that, you know, needed to be put down. But, you know, it wasn't, I, I didn't grow up certainly in, in any way in a, you know, a very, you know, guns everywhere household at all. You know, it was just the one gun always locked away, only mm-hmm. used in, you know, very serious, very necessary circumstances. So, yeah, I, I didn't really grow up around guns either. Okay, well, this has been a chocker block episode. So let's crack on with Bin Juice. The people have spoken. Lane Sainty doesn't like this segment, but everyone else does so we're bringing it back um this of course is about the stories that didn't get enough attention this week lane since you hate this segment so much i thought you could go first um (laughs) what is in your bin I, uh, you know what? I'll do a wrap. What is in your bin? (laughs) What is in my bin? Okay, so this week, Alice, my bin juice is to do with the Assistant Health Minister, David Gillespie, who was asked on Sky by Samantha Maiden about how much an abortion costs in Australia. So drugs for a medical abortion cost $38.80 under the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme, but... To actually get an abortion in Australia on average costs way more than that. So our colleague Gina Rushton has done some really great reporting around this and early this year wrote a story about the costs of getting an abortion in different Australian cities. So these are kind of um, the average costs for a medical abortion. In Adelaide and Darwin, Mm. under certain circumstances, women can get an abortion at a public hospital at no cost. But in all other states, you're looking at costs from $250 in Hobart to around $500 to 
$2,550 in Brisbane, Sydney, Perth, Melbourne and Canberra. And then that goes up to $790 in Townsville. So those are, again, costs for medical abortions. Anyway, Sam Maiden asked Gillespie about this on Sky and his answer was, you know, not illuminating. Let's play the tape. $500, as I understand it, is purely essentially about a GP management fee to, you know, be on call if something goes wrong, which, you know, in a lot of cases it doesn't. Yeah, look, I'm not privy to what GPs are charging out there in, um, in, the, in the real world. Um, I'm, I, I just don't have a real comment on that because I'm not abreast of what these alleged costs are. I'd have to take information from the department and see if that is indeed the case or whether people are charging out-of-pocket costs. Uh, you know, we don't tell GPs what to charge. So that's the Assistant Health Minister having no idea of the costs associated with abortions in Australia. And as Gina pointed out, an abortion is a very common procedure. According to her reporting, one in three pregnancies in Australia are unintended and one in five are terminated. So this is a big problem for access to abortion in terms of costs. And that, you know, is particularly felt by women in rural and regional communities. So... That's my binge. Not to mention, it is still a crime. Still a crime in Queensland and New South Wales. Abortion is still a crime. Outrageous. Um, I was going to do my binge about another uh, uh, feministy topic um, about how the few women there were at COAG this week. There were five (laughs) women out of uh, twenty-one around the table. There were two female premiers and three public servants, which is better than last year when there were three. Ah! So, uh, (laughs) well, well done, Australia. Well done, Australia. Only <laughs> 23% of women at the most important table in the country. But um, oh I, but instead I think I might just quickly do a bin juice on something strange that happened last Friday. So last Friday, not only did Brandis drop those AAT appointments at about 4.30 in the afternoon, but a couple of hours later I got a phone call, incidentally while I was painting my friend's apartment, um, about a tip that the Army had briefed some uh, people in the media, but not us, um, mm-hmm. about uh, uh, about a story that was had been embargoed until 12.01 on Saturday. So obviously it was a long weekend, football grand final weekend. It's an interesting time to drop something. It probably won't get a lot of attention. Um, so anyway, I found out a couple of hours before these stories were meant to go up um, online that uh, the story was about Australian troops being involved in two airstrikes that killed or injured eight Iraqi civilians, including two children in West Mogul. So there were two bombing raids. One involved Australian personnel in March, where a coalition plane bombed a residential building in the ISIS-held city of West Mogul, killing or injuring seven civilians, including one child. And then and then another one in June where RAAF Hornets bombed another building. Uh, a child is believed to have been killed in that strike as well. So eight dead or injured in total. But despite, you know, defence waiting until September to brief on these two things that happened in March and June, they were still mm. a bit sketchy on the details, um, but they did say that they had done an investigation and they'd cleared themselves of any wrongdoing. And they say that they operated within rules of engagement. But hmm. you know, I think okay. that you know, I think yeah. that when things like this come up, it's worth noting because we really don't know a lot about what we are doing in the Middle East. We just don't. They just don't tell us. Yeah, and I mean the the months that no one knew anything about this until you know they kind of decided to drop it to media outlets late at night on mm. grand final weekend it's you know it's a bit worrying and then also really quickly i just wanted to say that um we also found out today that arthur sinodinus who is the industry and science minister he's revealed that he is battling cancer 
Uh, and so he will be out of parliament until the end of the year. He thinks he hopes he can be back in a few months. Um, and that's the second uh, minister who is out on sick leave. Uh, Scott Ryan, who is the special minister of state, is also out, which is why Matthias Coleman has been acting special minister of state for this whole postal survey bizzo. Um, mm. But, Lane, I think that is all we have time for this episode. I want to say a quick thank you to our producer, Nicholas Ray, Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team. Of course, a big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash on or subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. Uh, leave us a rating and a review. I really like reading the reviews because they're um, normally quite funny and they're a bit roasty which i really like uh we will be back with another episode next week um but listen to the other buzzfeed australia podcast it's called pretty for an aboriginal their fourth ep is out this week um and it features emily sears and it's a really really great listen uh but of course we want you to get involved and tell us what we should be talking about you can uh tweet you know we listened like we listened about bin juice lane didn't like it so we didn't do it and then the people spoke and they were like bring back bin juice we yeah, like the, on- the, the only problem and the juices the only problem that we haven't been able to solve when it comes to Twitter feedback is gallery whispers because oh, you are God, all so whispers. goddamn divided over gallery whispers. Uh, yeah, anyway, I'm at Workman Alice on Twitter. She's at Lane Sainty. I am at Lane Sainty. Please at me about anything you like. But in the meantime, only the postal survey. A- only at her about the postal survey. <laughs> Look, at me about other things if you if you would like. I can handle it. Um, the TV in the meantime, show, the office or the postal survey? <laughs> yes, please tag me always in good office <laughs> tweets. There is nothing I love more than that show except for the postal survey. Um, but anyway, in the meantime, before you at me, I have a question yeah. that I will not be yes. atting at Alice because I get to ask her in real life every week. Alice mm. Workman, is it on? Okay, well, an update from last week. Uh, it is still on in the Victorian <laughs> Greens because Greg Barber, the leader that, that stepped down, uh, literally has gone fishing on. like Winston Peters. Uh, so no lady. I like to give people an update. If I bring a topic up, I like okay. to update them. All so right, we still, right. it, it's still on in the Victorian <laughs> Greens. But yeah. look, I don't want to – I feel like we talk about him every week and I don't want to say that correlation equals causation. But as you mm-hmm. all know, Mark Stefano moved to the UK recently <laughs> and just started working at BuzzFeed UK and literally he moved there and now the Tories want to get rid of Prime Minister Theresa May. I'm just saying, Lane, I think that Mark Stefano has taken it being on from Australia to the UK. Here is what yeah. Home Secretary Amber Rudd said. <clears throat> The Prime Minister will continue in her role to do an excellent job. She has my full support. Her full support! You know what that means, Lane? Oh, no. You know what that means? Yeah, everything's over. When your ministers are saying you have my full support, it is absolutely over. (laughs) Well, maybe we'll get Mark on next week to give us a UK update and uh, tell us how uh, absolutely ruined it is. Um, because if, if you haven't yes, seen it, that would Theresa be May made this, this just appalling speech at the, the Tory conference this weekend. I kind of feel sorry for her, but I kind of know I kind of don't. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.